From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we acknowledge National Library Week with true personal stories from Cindy Clement Carlson, Christia Basil, and Sarah Bracey White. I'm reading the library book by Susan Orlean. She describes a library's need for order and proper shelving, observing that the commitment to findability is absolute. All my life, libraries in all forms have been my true church, reading my true religion. On my first visit to the library, I was overwhelmed by the sight of so many books in one place. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer David Masello describes the difference between a diary and a journal, and how for him, journaling offers a sense of both freedom and fear. Every four or five months, I need to buy a new writing journal. I've been doing this for 40-something years, so you do the math. That's all just ahead on Read 650. National Library Week is a time to celebrate our nation's libraries and library workers' contributions to our communities. Since 1958, National Library Week has been sponsored by the American Library Association and observed in libraries across the country each April. All types of libraries, school, public, academic, and special, participate. And you can learn more at the American Library Association website, ALA.org. We begin today with a powerful personal story from Cindy Clement Carlson, a children's librarian who was at work in the Sandy Hook School Library Media Center on the day of the December 2012 shooting. This is Cindy, recorded on stage at the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle, New York, reading her story, The Commitment to Findability. I'm reading the library book by Susan Orlean. She describes a library's need for order and proper shelving, observing that the commitment to findability is absolute. A misshelved book may as well be thrown in the trash. School librarians ask their students not to reshelve books that they've browsed for fear that dolphin nonfiction will end up in mythology or panda books will end up in the origami section. After you've listened to gunshots kill 20 kids and six teachers, the library can help you get yourself back in order too. After the December 2012 shooting at Sandy Hook School, every book and magazine in the library media center was packed by professional library movers, trucked to a nearby mothballed middle school, and unpacked every Kindle, every bookmark, Every morning meeting rug was taken from the sacred chaos of that building and brought to a former middle school in nearby Monroe. Over a wretched extended winter break marked by funerals, our staff of three estimated how high could an elementary school student reach on a middle school shelf. We evaluated our storage closet for its capacity to shelter students from gunfire. We unpacked familiar posters and signs, all while learning how to lock the doors quickly. 
then, first day in Monroe for the students. Every aspect of their school had changed, yet the library can remind you who you are. Remember how much you like the stuffed dragon? It's still on top of the nonfiction shelf. Remember the bin of princess books? Yes, here it is. Sharks, right here in Dewey 597.3. Library cards brought from Monroe to Sandy Hook were out on our new circulation desk by the computer as always. You're a third grader, your card is still blue. There's the corner where you picked at the lamination every year since you earned it as a kindergartner. Yes, hearing that metal water bottle clatter to the floor in the hall was upsetting. Let's walk over to the printer so we remember what that sounds like, too. Most satisfying was fulfilling a hold that was placed in the old school. With effortful handwriting, young students filled out hold slips to request books that were already checked out. When those books were returned to the new school, I silently thanked the parents who had the presence of mind to remember that it was library day and enthusiastically informed the students that their hold was in. Never mind that the staff was accounting for books left in the classrooms where the shooting had occurred. Never mind that we wrapped a rubber band around a stack of 20 library cards for students that had died. Never mind that we threw away overdue notices for young patrons who had lost a sibling. For our young patrons, we focused on what was consistent and what was still in place. Last night, your mother explained how girls from your brownie troop had died. But the next morning in the library, here are the rookie readabouts in the cart as always, square edges lined up in dewy order. Your bus stop has two fewer kids each morning. But in the library, the tent card that shows your place in the table is propped up in January, just like it was in December. That first winter, MLK Day and President's Day came quickly. Tucked in the back room for now were the books that describe their death by shooting. But look, the Valentine's books we've been displaying for years. Come check out Clifford's first Valentine's Day or Fancy Nancy Heart to Heart, just like you did last year. We strove to maintain our traditions, our processes, Caldecott Award Day, Nutmeg Novel Reveal Day. Six Caldecott days later, we're still putting the pieces of ourselves back together as a school, as a town, as a community. I hope the library helps some of these kids find who they were before the shooting. The commitment to findability was absolute. Cindy Clement Carlson has lived in Sandy Hook for 20 years. She was at work in the Sandy Hook School Media Library on the day of the shooting. All three of her children attended Sandy Hook School, and her daughter was present on that day. Cindy has written several pieces about Sandy Hook School and the aftermath of the shooting, including this one, which was originally created for Read 650. Christia Basil's love of books was fostered by her mother, a voracious reader who visited her library in Madras, India, every single week. Her mother's passion became her own, and it continues to enrich her life and now the lives of her children. Here, with her contribution to our special National Library Week show, here is Christia Basil reading My Library. If I could, I would live in a cocoon of books stacked 10 high, 
20 deep. If I could, I would choose to die amongst books, words swirling around my soul, skeptical of another heaven. All my life, libraries in all forms have been my true church, reading my true religion. This love of reading is my mother's living legacy to me. Newly married and settling down in the sprawling metropolis of Madras, the first thing her husband discovered was that he had committed to a library visit once a week. These were libraries where you paid a small fee per book per day. This expense would find a permanent place in the monthly budget. But riding his scooter to the library with his young wife primly sitting pillion, impeccably dressed in a chiffon sari, her arm wrapped across his hammering, happy heart, the effort and the expense had been worth it. Three kids later, the tradition continued. Day one of summer, my father knew to prepare for the hour-long journey to the biggest and best lending library in the city. We now had a family van, our trusted Maruti Suzuki. We carried with us two large jute bags with sturdy wooden handles. They would come back filled to the brim with novels for my mother, Daniel Steele and Mary Higgins Clark, jostling with Stephen King and John Grisham. For us kids, it was Archie and the gang, spunky Nancy Drew, and those groovy hardy boys. But it wasn't just the lending libraries of Madras that fed my reading frenzy. In the seaside town of Pondicherry, my cousins maintained a small library in their home stacked with back issues of Reader's Digest as well as books on the adventures of adolescent girls in boarding schools like St. Clair's, Mallory Towers, and the Alpine Chalet School. Oh, how I long to be a boarder sharing top boxes during covert midnight feasts. When we visited the cosmopolitan city of Bangalore, my other cousins introduced me to Trixie Belden. Trixie solved mysteries around her hometown, Sleepy Side on Hudson. Trixie was klutzy and awkward, but smart and fearless. I related to her growing up. I still want to be her when I'm all grown up. And this series is absolutely why I chose to live in the Hudson, near the Hudson. I came to the United States for my master's degree at Miami University in the bucolic town of Oxford, Ohio. <laughs> my first winter knocked me near dead. As undergrads talked up for snowstorms with giant bags of pretzels and six packs of beer, I showed up my spirit by heading to the cavernous school library and checking out armloads of books on every subject that had ever caught my imagination growing up. In my cozy off-campus room, I set up a third-hand bookshelf that I lovingly lined with my library books. I racked up substantial fines I had to pay before I could graduate, but it's a small price for two years of literal, literary immersion. To date, my most delightful discovery about the U.S. is not the jalapeno poppers from Arby's or the lemon-glazed donuts at Krispy Kreme. It is the very fact that public libraries exist. 
To be part of a community that prioritizes access to books, the same as access to water, I do not take this for granted, especially now. My parents taught me well, and I'm trying to do the same for my children. It is now my treasured tradition to visit the local library with my kids. After story time, I read in a rocking chair while they lose themselves in the children's nook. We leave with far too many books to carry. Christia Basil has been a producer in the film and TV industry for nearly two decades, working with PBS, BBC, Animal Planet, the History Channel, and other media organizations to create compelling and relevant content. She was inspired to write for children after having two of her own, and her debut picture book, A Sky Without Lines, about a boy separated from his brother by a border, was released by Mine Edition and received many prestigious honors. She was invited to give a copy to President Biden during his campaign in acknowledgement of his commitment to rejoin the families separated at the U.S.-Mexico border. An immigrant herself from Chennai, India, she now resides in New York. As a young girl growing up in the Jim Crow South, writer Sarah Bracey White's access was limited to a segregated school library. But it contained a world of books and a world of ideas that paved a way forward and a way out. This is Sarah Bracey White reading Food for Thought. The only books in the house where I grew up were a big unabridged dictionary a 28-volume World Book Encyclopedia, and the King James Version of the Bible. The paucity would have been understandable if I'd known that my mother grew up in a house without any books because her mother was illiterate and her father could barely read. Mama seldom spoke about her life as a child. Her focus was on teaching school and sending us to school even when we were sick. Though she had only two years of college training, Mama was a school teacher. Every summer for 14 years, she took classes at nearby Morris College, finally earning her diploma two months before my brother, her fifth and last child, was born. To Mama, reading was not for pleasure. Books were a source of knowledge, knowledge that would change your life. For me, books were an escape from a life I could not change. Trapped in a small South Carolina town where the color of my skin barred me from the newly built Carnegie Library on nearby Liberty Street, I reveled in the library on the second floor of Lincoln the segregated school I attended from grades 7 through 12. My family's tight budget excluded me from the daily hot lunches sold in Lincoln's cafeteria. Each day, after hurriedly eating the bologna sandwich my mother spiced up with hot sauce, I rushed out of the cafeteria and up a short flight of stairs to a place where I could devour as much as I wanted free of charge. 
At the top of the stairs, I pushed open the door to a large rectangular room, the mirror image of the cafeteria below, where instead of tables, rows and rows of evenly spaced, honey-colored, waist-high wooden shelves lined with books of all shapes and sizes marched across the room. Sunlight usually flooded the space through windows that covered three sides of the room. At the windowless end, behind a low counter made of the same blonde wood as the shelves, sat a middle-aged woman whose round body and sparkly eyes revealed the satiation that comes from many good meals followed by many good books. I wanted a life just like hers. On my first visit to the library, I was overwhelmed by the sight of so many books in one place. I wandered from bookshelf to bookshelf, my neck arched at an awkward angle to read the titles without moving the books from their assigned places. The librarian, whom I came to know as Miss Cuthbert, noticed me and called out that it was okay to take books from the shelves. She also said that if I got a library card, I could take up to six home each week. I got a library card that very day and thereafter proceeded to spend most of my lunch hour perusing Lincoln's collection. I devoured the words in those books as greedily as my classmates gobbled cherry cobbler from their stainless steel lunch trays. At the rate you're going, you'll have read every book in this library before you graduate, Miss Cuthbert once told me. That was my plan. Lincoln's library fed my love of words and people when I was too poor to buy books. I lost myself in stories about people whose lives were even more hard-scrabble than mine, though some had lives far better than mine. Frequently, the bad lives got better. Those were the lives I longed to inhabit. Their stories taught me that change was possible. They also taught me that determination and effort were the catalyst for that change. Those stories seeped into my being, assuring me that I would not always be a poor colored girl living under separatist rules. They also drove me into the arms of learning and became the engine for my journey toward becoming a librarian and a writer. Sarah Bracey White is a Southern storyteller who mines her life for poems, essays, stories, and memoirs. Her memoir, Primary Lessons, was made into an immersive dramatic musical, which debuted live in 2021 at the Paramount Theater in Peekskill, New York, with Sarah in a starring role. Other literary work includes The Wanderlust, a South Carolina folktale, and Feelings Brought to Surface, a poetry collection. Her work has been collected in several anthologies and has also been featured in the New York Times, the Baltimore Afro-American Newspaper, the Scarsdale Inquirer, and the Journal News. She and her husband live in Ossining, New York. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I am your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team is Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati-Mayer. 
Sarah Caldwell is Chief Technology Officer and Troubleshooter. Fran Tuno is our announcer, and our show was produced by Jim Russick. After the break, it's Between the Lines with David Masello. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from the New Rochelle Council on the Arts. Created by the New Rochelle City Council to stimulate and encourage the study and presentation of the performing and fine arts. For nearly 50 years, NERCA has worked to fulfill its mission by sponsoring art exhibitions, public art, theatrical productions, dance recitals, film screenings, lectures, and concert series. Learn more and see event schedules at newrochellearts.org. David Masello has been writing in journals for most of his adult life. It's his way of capturing thoughts and ideas that he might later develop, or working through feelings too raw or too complicated to directly express to someone else. For today's Between the Lines segment, here's David Masello with Writing Timeline. Every four or five months, I need to buy a new writing journal. I've been doing this for 40-something years, so you do the math. For years at a time, I use only lined page blank books, then change to unlined ones. I've been immersed in a long, unlined phase, and I think I prefer those. Something about unlined pages makes you feel freer, especially when I'm thinking out a poem or dialogue for a play, which often means inserting a lot of arrows and writing sideways. Picking out that new journal is something I enjoy so much and recognize as so important that I can only do it alone. I have my sources for these books, but among the most reliable is McNally Jackson Bookstore on Prince Street. I was there today to pick out a new journal, since my latest is three pages away from being filled up. I found one, cloth-bound, olive-colored, with a spine that can be laid fully flat, which means that no words will be lost in the gutter. Sometimes the books are hardbound, cloth-bound, or paper-backed. They have to be the right thickness, trim size. The paper can't be too soft, which slows the pen, or too slick, which can result in smudgings of ink. And the cover has to be a hue I like so that I can be inspired every morning when I return to it. And do I put my name and address on the first page in case I lose the journal while traveling? But that would mean someone will know who I am after reading my writings confessions. If they were to call me to say they found my journal, I might be too embarrassed to admit it's mine. In the last decade and a half, all I've needed to do is put down my cell number. There's a sadness that comes with putting away that latest journal and a concern, too, that I might be forever missing threads of new essays and poems and plays that I haven't yet explored. I brush my fingers across the filled surfaces, so embossed with inked words that each page feels like braille or bas-relief. Fact is, I rarely look at the old journals. By the time I've filled a couple of pages of a new one, the old one recedes in importance and feels unfamiliar. These are never diaries. I rarely date the page and I don't record the obvious things I should. 
I use these books to sort out my feelings, try out new pieces, complain, shake out despair, converse with myself, and sometimes I go from the first person to the second person, the I to the you. When I use the you, it means that some other part of me is talking to me, giving me advice, instructing me on what to write, what to think, how to stop or start loving someone. A problem that haunts me is what happens when, well, I'm no longer writing these journals. I never want anyone to read them, though given my scrawl, it's not so likely someone will be able to read them. I think, and this sounds grimmer than I mean it to, but at what point do I destroy these, knowing that the bodily journal of myself is about to be filled up and put away? I imagine some bonfire in the future where I feed in the books as fuel. But how will I know it's the right time to do that? For now, I write in these books without fear of anyone reading them, and with the fearless hope that whatever I'm putting down in ink might morph into something printed in ink or recited on stage. David Masello began his career as a nonfiction book editor at Simon & Schuster. He then went on to hold senior editorial positions at many magazines, including Travel and & Leisure, Art and & Antiques, and Town and & Country. He's currently executive editor of Milieu, a magazine about design, and he is also a widely published essayist and poet, with pieces appearing in the New York Times, Best American Essays, and numerous literary and art magazines. He lives in New York City. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show, and it is the place that we encourage writers of all genres to contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and while you're there, check out the open submission calls for our upcoming shows. Read 650 isn't just a nonprofit literary organization with a mission to promote and create performance opportunities for writers, but we're also a growing community of writers and of readers and listeners, and we'd like for you to join us. Scroll to the bottom of our homepage at read650.org and share your contact to receive our semi-weekly newsletter. I'll share information about upcoming events and open prompts, but I will never share your email address, and you can unsubscribe at any time with a single click. If this sounds good to you and you'd like to be part of our community, then please join us because we would love to have you. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Cindy Clement Carlson, Christia Basil, Sarah Bracey White, and David Masello. And in honor of National Library Week, we especially thank library workers everywhere. Libraries, librarians, and library workers play a valuable role in transforming lives and communities. They are at the heart of their cities, towns, schools, and campuses. Public spaces where people of all backgrounds can come together and read, relax, explore, learn, and connect. This is a good time to give your librarian a gift certificate or even a hug. Be sure to ask first, about the hug anyway. You can learn more at the American Library Association website, ALA.org. For more Read 650, follow us on your favorite social media. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.